going to talk now about fake news in an historical context and in an Irish historical context. It's a phrase that's become hugely popular, I suppose, in recent years. But it's nothing new. As we'll hear during the War of Independence, British press officers experienced in producing World War I propaganda practiced the not-so-subtle art of disseminating falsehoods. I'm joined by historian Michael Barry, author of the new book, Fake News and the Irish War of Independence. And Michael, fake news is not, it's not a new concept. It's not even a 20th century concept, as you point out in your introduction. It's been around for millennia. Give us some almost archaeological examples of of fake news, if you would, first. (laughs) Yes, Miles, they actually are a bit archaeological. Yes, uh, fake news has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It goes with human nature. And just to give you a few examples, back in 34 BC in Rome, the wealthy patrician Octavian mounted a campaign of disinformation against his rival, the general Mark Anthony, who was then in dalliance with Cleopatra. And um, Octavian succeeded and became the, the first emperor, the Emperor Augustus. Another example was during the Spanish Armada in 1588, the chief advisor to Queen Elizabeth I forged a letter purporting to come from a English Catholic priest, which told, expanded about the losses of the Armada, and it was intended to dissuade English Catholics from supporting the Spanish cause. Another example is when actually the British were the target during the American War of Independence, when Benjamin Franklin produced a forged supplement to a, a newspaper which which had falsehoods about the British. And the term itself, well, the first time I've seen the term fake news used was in an 1894 edition of an American magazine called Puck. There was a cartoon showing a newspaper tycoon with newsmen running in with sensations and scandals. And one of them bears the newspaper with fake news written on it. Now, when it comes to the War of Independence, I presume the British forces or the British authorities would have been emboldened by the success of their disinformation efforts in, in World War One, where they, let's face it, they beat the Germans into a cocked hat without American or, or French aid. Tell us about some of the stories they were putting out during World War One. Yes, they were very expert at that. It started in September 1914. Lloyd George was very worried about the propaganda from the Germans, so they set up a war propaganda bureau. This produced a stream of books, pamphlets and articles and actually using the new medium of cinema as well. And it was a giant publishing house and they churned out propaganda, giving their, their side of the story. The United States was very important to them, so they had set up a special information bureau in New York and they channeled reports to about 500 newspapers. They paid surreptitious subsidies to newspapers, including in Latin America and Greece. And interestingly, they had suborned Reuters, which was purportedly an objective international news agency, but it was receiving subsidy from the British, as well as the Marconi Radio Company. Uh, They were really, really good at propaganda, whereas by contrast, the Germans were a bit cack-handed. They just didn't have the the knack of propaganda. In fact, the British, uh, an early case during the war was when the British nurse Cavill was executed by the Germans for spying and they made great uh, play of this. And at 
a later stage, an American reporter had an exchange with a Prussian officer who said, why didn't you, you know, play up the same for some German nurses who on the same grounds were, were executed by the, the French? And um, I have here the phrase, why didn't you raise the devil about those nurses the, the French shot the other day? What protest? The French had a perfect right to shoot them. So it illustrates how, how the Germans had a very bad attitude if liked to propaganda. It just wasn't in their nature. And then later on, of course, various German generals pointed out the effects of propaganda. And in fact, one proven expert in the use of malevolent falsehood, if you like, in other words, Adolf Hitler in his Mein Kampf said that the anti-German campaign of the British was, and I quote, an inspired work of genius. And he concluded that the propaganda by the enemy, the British, has been regarded as a weapon of the first order, while in our country it was the last resort of unemployed politicians and a haven for slackers. <laughs> when it comes then to the War of Independence, the British are, they're on the back foot when it comes to intelligence. They're also on the back foot when it comes to propaganda. So how do they set about trying to turn the tide, in the latter case at least, in terms of propaganda? Yes, it happened in the early months of 1920 when the British were reeling under the attacks of the IRA on the RSC and that led to the recruiting of the Black and Tans and then the auxiliaries and there was a shake-up in Dublin Castle and a whole lot of new personnel were brought in and under Hamer Greenwood the Chief Secretary there was a press information bureau set up under an experienced newsman called Basil Clark but as well as that under the General Tudor, who's in charge of the auxiliaries, that set up an information bureau of the police authority. And that brought in some captains, Captains Pollard and Darling in, in particular, who had been quite expert in propaganda during the First World War. Captain Pollard in particular was a very colourful character and he had been behind the biggest hoax of the First World War. That's the corpse factory story. This is the story that the Germans were boiling down the bodies of exactly. soldiers to make glycerol. Yes, and, and Pollard, who is based in a shadowy intelligence section dealing with propaganda, MI7B, claimed that he was behind this uh, story, which was picked up by the respectable press, by the Times and by London and New York Times and caused an absolute scandal because people believed it. And in particular in the Oriental countries and in China where they had believed in ancestor worship and this was scandalous. And at the time the, the Allies were, were trying to bring the Chinese into the war on their side. But anyway, back to Dublin. Basil Clark, the head of the PIB under Hamer Greenwood in Dublin Castle, he believed in bending the news, but he kept a fairly even line. But in the public information branch with Captain Pollard, he was behind the creation of the, the weekly summary, which was aimed at the RSC. It was a weekly newsletter at the RSC, but also, of course, available to the press. And it came out with outrageous material including incitement to the police to carry out atrocities. And they reported like-minded newspapers like the Morning Post, such things as the Anti-Sinn Féin Society in Cork had issued a notice saying that if any member of the Crown Forces were shot, then two 
Sinn Feiners would be shot. And a lot of the output of the weekly summary actually caused outrage in the House of Commons with opposition. The Republican repost to the weekly summary, even though it actually begins months before the weekly summary, was the Irish Bulletin. To what extent was the Irish Bulletin similar to the weekly summary or to what extent did they actually stick to the facts and was it a more reputable publication? Well, I guess in terms of physical output, pretty similar. They're both fairly basic publications, just newsletters. The Irish Bulletin produced by the Sinn Féin Department of Propaganda was a mimeographed publication. started off very small, but they generally stuck to the facts and they gave Sinn Féin's views and they exposed the activities of the crime forces. And, uh, you know, as the atrocities increased, uh, they had quite a lot to, to tell. Over time, they established what you could say was a gold-plated circulation list. It was sent to the opposition in the House of Commons. It was sent to the senators and congressmen in America and to opinion leaders in European capitals around the English-speaking world as well. And for a brief period, uh, Hugh Pollard was actually running both the weekly summary and the Irish Bulletin. Tell us, it didn't last long, but tell us how that happened. No, it didn't. No, no, no. I think he he was somewhat of a a Biggles character Mm. and was always ready for a jolly jape, if you like. And it so happened that the auxiliaries raided the then offices of the Irish Bulletin, which, of course, moved from about 20 different locations during the War of Independence. And they confiscated the mimeograph machine but also the circulation list. So Pollard and his colleague produced fake copies of the Irish Bulletin and it was filled with sort of nonsense saying that the Irish public supported the RSC and it also tried to discredit Sinn Féin by saying, please come in with falsehoods to us so we can publish them. In other words, trying to imply that Sinn Féin were Mm. coming out with falsehoods. But it was very soon found out Somebody in the in opposition MP in the House of Commons said to him or Greenwood, the chief secretary, you know, don't, please don't waste your money sending me any more of this nonsense. And uh, the real Irish bulletin continued and they, had, they placed a little green stamp saying official version <laughs> after that. So the, there were only a couple of uh, editions, fake editions of mm. the Irish Bulletin. Um, one of Pollard's it turned out to be unsuccessful in the end, but uh, you, you, know, you have to pat him on the back for, for effort. And that was the, the concoction of the, the, the so-called Battle of Tralee. Now, there, there yes. was actually, there was a basis to it. There was a background to it. There was fighting. But explain uh, what actually happened happened and what was the reaction to the concoctions that Pollard came up with? Yes, just to explain that, yes, at the beginning of November 1920, there there was a lot of uproar in Tralee itself. The IRA had captured two RSC constables and then the auxiliaries were going through the town and burning down buildings and so on. But it so happened that there was a press junket organised on the 10th of November, set out from Dublin with Pollard and a colleague from London, two journalists and two cameramen, accompanied by two crossly tenders of auxiliaries. On the morning of the 12th of November, there was a encounter between the RSC at Bally McKellicott, which is just outside of Tralee. There was an exchange of fire with the local IRA active service unit, which left two IRA dead. 
And then in the afternoon at around four o'clock, Pollard and the press party showed up. There were still some IRA there and there was an exchange of fire. But the whole thing was not really a battle. It, you know, it was a fairly commonplace skirmish. And a cameraman was observed working his camera. And then a few days later, Pollard and his colleague arrived back in Dublin Castle and they were told by Mark Sturgis, who was an assistant under secretary there, who wrote a particularly racy diary. And he noted in his diary that uh, he told Pollard to give some red-hot witness accounts of this. And so a few days later in English newspapers and in such as the Illustrated London News, there were photographs appeared showing dead bodies lying around, auxiliaries rounding up what they call Sinn Féiners. And a few days later, on the 27th of November, the Irish Independent published a photograph of the scene as in the Illustrated London News, along with a photograph of the very same scene at Viker Road in Killiney. And uh, the whole thing was exposed. A staff photographer of the Irish Independent had spotted that the lamppost in the picture from his knowledge of Trilly, there was no such lamppost there. And then, of course, there was outrage again in the House of Commons. There were questions, did the government provide these vehicles, uh, these Crosley tenders and so on, for this fake photograph, and which was denied? And then, later on, in the beginning of December, a nationalist MP related how there had been a showing of the newsreel and how in one of the shots a corpse was seen to move and the film was withdrawn at that stage nobody really believed the output of dublin castle because of this extreme falsehoods that they were emitting they had lost credibility it's pretty clear from what you're saying that britain did not win the propaganda war did that actually shorten the war itself it was part of the reasons for shortening it. And there was, of course, the military campaign with the continuous pinpricks of the ordinary ambushes by the IRA, plus the spectators such as the Kilmichael ambush and the burning of the Custom House, etc. But to my mind, what really caused the maximum pressure on Lloyd George to agree to talks with Sinn Féin was the continual seepage of the news of the atrocities in Ireland you know, during 1920, you had reprisals all over the country where Crown forces burnt down towns and cities. And then from the beginning of 1921, many of the reprisals became official. And that seeped through, and particularly into places like America, where Britain was extremely sensitive to pressure from America. And it cut across the whole self-image, British self-image of, you know, that the empire stood for fair play and justice. And to my mind, that was one of the key factors in forcing the British to come to the negotiating table. And then, of course, which led to the truce of 11th of July in 1921. Well, we'll have to leave it there. The book is called Fake News and the Irish War of Independence. It's full of great images to illustrate this aspect of the uh, the war itself. And I'm sure it would be of particular interest to residents of Tralee and uh, of the Vico Road in Killiney. It's published by Andalus Press. It's available from books.ie and all good bookshops. The author is Michael Barry. Michael, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Miles. 
That's all we've time for on this evening's programme and indeed all we have time for on this season of The History Show. But I'm glad to say we will be back sometime in the new year with more episodes. Our reader tonight was Kira Clancy. My thanks this evening to Jamie Doyle and Kieran Cullen on sound and to our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and have a very happy Christmas.